scripture. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14, Jesus says there, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, we humbly pause and ask as we continue now in our worship Having prayed and sang and fellowshiped, Lord, we ask that our worship of you would continue now as we give our full heart and attention to what the Word of God would say to us this morning. Lord, as always, we humbly ask, prepare us accordingly, and we ask that by your Spirit, you would speak through what you've already spoken here in the written Word of God this day to those assembled here as a gathering. So, Lord, we offer this time of worship to you now and pray you'd speak to us personally in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think perhaps one of the most dangerous conditions to be in is to be very unhealthy, yet not even be aware of your own unhealthy condition. Certainly, we understand how that can happen physically to perhaps be very unhealthy physically and not even be fully aware how unphysically unhealthy our body or our condition really is. But even more dangerous is if that tends to be true spiritually. Even more dangerous would be to be in an unhealthy spiritual condition and not even be aware of how unhealthy one's own spiritual condition is. That's very dangerous. And such was the case, as we see here, in the church of the Laodiceans. The church of the Laodiceans were in a very unhealthy spiritual condition. The language of Jesus clearly indicates that in its reading. He even indicates, you notice, their own self-deceived perspective regarding their own condition. Right in the midst of the message, he says to them these words, you say that we are healthy and successful and established and doing great and we don't need anything. Things are buzzing along wonderfully. And then Jesus says in that searching statement, and you do not know. In other words, you don't even realize you don't even recognize that your own condition is actually the opposite from heaven's assessment, that they were actually wretched and poor and blind and living in a very shameful way in regards to their spiritual condition. In fact, we see here their current state spiritually, we might fairly say, disgusted Jesus. When Jesus says, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth, that's pretty strong language there. And when we see Jesus being shut outside of the church, knocking on the door, asking to come back in, that's a pretty scary condition for a church to be in. Now, remember, there were more than seven churches in existence during the time that Jesus penned, if you would, these letters to these seven different congregations in Asia Minor. 
There were more than seven that existed, yet Jesus purposely chose with direct intention to address these specific seven congregations of believers. And again, we know in the Bible, seven represents the number of completion, seven notes in a scale, seven days in a week, in a complete week. So it seems in these seven churches being selected and addressed by Jesus, that perhaps Jesus is giving to us a complete representation of different conditions that churches and congregations can be in. In some ways, they represent a complete representation of different conditions at times that congregations could be in. And we've seen the church that was productive in its operation, but it lost passion in its love towards the Lord. That was Ephesus, remember. He said, you've left your first love. You're very productive. You're doing a lot. But the church was extremely productive, but true passion for the Lord had kind of diminished among them, and they were just operating like a very productive, successful business. We've seen the church that was undergoing severe hardship and suffering, but yet they were being faithful, though they were under severe hardship and going through difficult times and even satanic opposition. We saw the church undergoing really what was basically looking like a very complex religious system. They had established a wonderful, complex system of religion, but yet they had abandoned Scripture and esteemed their system of religion more than Scripture. We saw two different churches in forms of compromise morally and spiritually. They had compromised regarding what was biblical theology and true New Testament doctrine and had shifted into other ideas and belief systems that led to unhealthy doctrine in the church, wrong belief systems that were inconsistent with the life of Jesus and the word of God, and it also led to moral and compromised living among the people in the congregations. And then, of course, we also saw the church that was refusing to admit its decline, the dying church that greatly needed revival, and most recently, of course, the church of Philadelphia, the beautiful representation of really the ideal or healthy church. And in our last study together, we saw how that church of Philadelphia wonderfully represented a model for an ideal healthy church. And now this morning, as we come to our last letter of Jesus to the church of the Laodiceans, we see in contrast to the Church of Philadelphia, the healthy church, we see now a representation of a very unhealthy church. And it seems that Jesus puts this in front of us, the conditions of that congregation, to let us see and to perhaps even learn symptoms of what it is like when a church is very unhealthy. Or we might better say as well, what it is like when a Christian, even individually, is very unhealthy. Again, as we've said before, Jesus says, let those who have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Churches don't have ears, people do. And churches are made up of individuals, of individual believers. And so these messages, as we've looked at them, they're not just for historical churches, they're messages for all churches to consider at all times regarding their conditions and the counsel and instruction that Jesus would give regarding that as well as to all believers to consider perhaps our own condition is something the Lord is addressing in our life. So look with me in verse 14 as our letter opens, like all the others. It begins with Jesus saying, and to the angel, it's the angelos, the messenger of we've talked about, to the messenger, the angelos of the church of the Laodiceans. Now, Laodicea, we know, historically was a very wealthy, affluent city in Asia Minor. It was an advanced city, a lot of development, very prosperous. We know the city was famous for a very unique black wool that was very soft, however, in its touch, and it became very sought after among the Roman Empire, which led to great wealth from the industry of this black wool. It also was a community that was known for having sort of, if you would say, cutting-edge technology in the area of ophthalmology. They had created this eye salve among them that was bringing great benefits to people who had eye conditions. Now, one major indicator historically of the wealth of the Laodicean city 
was at one point they had suffered a devastating earthquake that brought severe damage to the city itself. And when the Roman government offered aid and assistance to help them recover and to rebuild, they declined any assistance from the throne and from the ruler and instead proudly utilized their own excess of vast financial reserves and they addressed their situation themselves. They did not feel they needed help or at least would not admit that they needed help and took great pride in being able to use their vast finances to address their situation. So as a community of people, the Laodiceans were very wealthy. They were extremely well organized as a city. They were self-sufficient like a well-oiled operation and they shut out the voice of the influence of anything from the throne, because their mentality is, we've got it all figured out. Our system works, and it is working quite well. Now, sadly, the church that was established in the city of Laodicea had embraced the patterns of the world system around it there within the city. And the church had become conformed to the patterns of the culture and became very reflective. We can tell from Jesus' language, the congregation was very wealthy. It seems they were very well organized. It seems they were very well established, working like a well-oiled operation with the same mindset, we've got this thing all figured out. We've got our system the production is buzzing. It seems that Jesus, in some ways, we might say, was the church's mascot, but he was not the church's main priority. Jesus, to some degree, was like a mascot in the church, but they had things cruising along quite well, and they were driven, really, and the word Laodicea almost conveys it, almost by customer needs. That word Laodicea, interestingly enough, is a compound word, Laos referencing the people. Dicea, the second half of the word, or Dicea, means the rights to rule. It's where we actually get the root of our word democracy. So the word Laodicea actually is a term that means the rights of the people or ruled by the people. And interestingly enough, such a name would be given to this church because it does kind of seem that this was the way that this congregation was operating. It was a church that was operating in a condition whereby it seemed to be ruled by the people. It was directed by the desires of the people and the interests of the people, and whatever the people were looking for in a church experience, that's how the church operated. They used their wealth, they used their production, and they operated in a way where they made sure the customer base was very satisfied because they were driven by the rights and the rule and the interests of the people. And so, and sadly, we see in many ways, it was sort of the people's thing rather than the Lord's thing which is a very indi big indication of a very, very unhealthy church because nowhere in the New Testament do we see endorsed the idea of the church being led and directed by the rights of the people or ruled by people or governed in a democratic capacity like any system or any government where the desires of the people and the preferences of people is what directs and governs how the church functions per se and operates. Whenever a church becomes ruled by the desires and the interests and the preferences of people alone, that is always going to lead to a decline in the health of any congregation. Because as human beings, let's be very candid, we are carnal, and we by nature default towards what's wrong, and that is contrary even to God's very design of how the church in the New Testament is to be operated and to function in its governance. We might fairly say the most simplistic form of church governance is really foremost still to be a theocracy, that is that God would be ruling. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God the Father put all things under the feet of Jesus and gave him to be the head over all things in the church. Peter writing says that Jesus is the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. Colossians 1 tells us that he, Jesus, is the head of the church and should have supremacy and, and preeminence among the people of the Lord. Jesus himself, remember, who was the first one to use that term, said, I will build what? my 
church. So the New Testament model, above all else, it's not this kind of government, that kind of government, the, the simplest way, the New Testament model of church governance is where Jesus, from a place of headship, is directing what is happening among his church, giving direction, guiding our paths, whatever he prefers, his plan. And yes, the Lord raises up, certainly the Lord raises up mature spiritual men with an enabling from the Holy Spirit to function in a stewardship of oversight. But the function of the stewardship and oversight in spiritual leaders in a church is not to direct the congregation. God help us if that begins to happen. The goal and the purpose and really the ministry of spiritual overseers in a congregation is we are to be receiving direction from the head, from Jesus, and then implementing his direction among the congregation, not giving direction. We're not running a business here. We're to be seeking the Lord, receiving his direction, taking signals from the head, and then simply in stewardship, implementing that direction in a careful oversight and stewardship. And the church of Laodicea, we can see, has Jesus standing on the outside, knocking to come back in. And because Jesus is on the outside, you can assure that is always going to cause a deterioration of spiritual health on the inside. So he says, write these things to the church of the Laodiceans, verse 14, look at it there, say, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So like in each of the letters, Jesus continues with the same pattern where he reveals himself, drawing attention to unique attributes of himself that in some ways seem to always be connected to the condition or situation within that congregation. And we've seen him do this in the prior six letters. And once again, he uniquely draws attention to certain aspects of his own nature that he deems are helpful for the particular congregation and their condition. Here, Jesus draws attention to himself in three ways. Look at it there in verse 14. He first calls himself the Amen. And the word amen is just a term of establishment. The word amen simply means so be it or let it be so. That's why often after our prayers, we say amen. The idea is, Lord, let that be so. We're establishing in a word of faith, Lord, bring that to pass. It's a word amen used to enforce agreement and to establish something. Often we say this, we say, do you give your amen to that? We talk about giving our amen to something. That is giving our agreement to it, giving our support to it, that it should transpire. And look, why does Jesus call himself the amen? Because perhaps one symptom we can see again of a unhealthy church or an, a symptom maybe even of an unhealthy Christian is that we lose touch with the important spiritual reality that we should always be seeking Jesus's amen to whatever we might do. That no matter how good it looks on paper, no matter how obvious it seems, no matter how wonderful our idea, no matter good or godly we think our plan is, we should always push the pause button and make very, very sure, Lord, do you give your amen to this? Do you give your amen to this? It doesn't even matter if the board gives their amen to this. Do you give your amen to this? It doesn't matter if the pastor gives his amen. To... Do you give your amen to this? That's very important. And it seems the church of the Laodiceans had kind of lost touch with that. And Jesus on the outside saying, uh, I am the head of the church. Do you want to make sure my amen is upon what you're doing there? And I think this is perhaps one of the reasons he reveals himself in that way. He also secondly calls himself, notice, the faithful and the true witness. Those terms faithful and true speak of being both reliable and being real or being sincere. So Jesus is the reliable and real testimony of what is accurate. And again, a primary purpose of any church existence should always be not offering to people a spiritually entertaining experience, but instead the role of a congregation the role of a church should be reliably giving an accurate representation of the Lord Jesus. 
as the faithful and the true witness. We should always be giving proper testimony to the Lord, showing who Jesus truly is, giving testimony to what Jesus desires, what his word says, and how we honor him. Thirdly, he says also that he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, the language, when you look at it there, literally conveys the idea, the the beginning of the creation of God, certainly not that Jesus was created by God. That's, That's heresy, and the Bible doesn't teach that. The term that he uses there conveys the idea that Jesus is the originator of what God was creating, and that makes complete sense, right? Because we know the Bible teaches that Jesus was involved in the physical creation of the earth together with the Father, and we also understand that as the Son of God, the Savior, and the Lord, that Jesus is the originator of this spiritual entity that we call the church, The Bible again tells us that. Jesus' own words, we alluded to them earlier. Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus gave origin to the church. It's based upon his person. It's rooted in the reality that he is the Savior and the Son of God. Colossians 1 says it this way, of Christ as the originator of this entity of the church. Colossians 1 says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the preeminence. So again, giving us strong reminder, Jesus is, that the church is indeed to be foremost about him personally. And look, whenever it becomes in any congregation or church about other things, and we begin to shut out the presence of Jesus we are headed in a very unhealthy condition as a congregation. Whenever a church, and look, all of these things, I'm indicting myself here, all these things can happen. If a church becomes predominantly too much about the pastoral figure, unhealthy. When a church becomes too much about the church's cool identity, unhealthy. When a church becomes too much about the activities that that church offers and Whenever the focus of the person of Jesus and honoring his presence slowly gets shut out over time, that church is headed to a very, very unhealthy condition. And Jesus here reminds of that. Look what he goes on to say, verse 15 to them. He says, and I know, I'm aware of your works. Interesting. Again, Jesus uses that term. We've seen it before, your works. That's the term ergon, where we get our English word energy. So in essence, Jesus is saying, I'm aware of all your energy there in the congregation. I'm aware of all the enthusiasm that exists among the Laodicean church, your excitement and energy and efforts that you put into all the activities that the church is operating. This church, it seems, knew how to stir up enthusiasm. They knew how to stir up an emotional you know, razz among the group and how to get everyone enthusiastic. They were very diligent in their activities. They operated a top-notch program, and they were getting everyone excited about their cause. And look, here's the thing. That's not necessarily an indicator of spiritual health. Spiritual enthusiasm or people getting enthusiastic and getting very energetic and psyched up and hyped up and the church becoming like a pep rally is not necessarily an indication of spiritual health. And listen, I am not saying at all there's anything wrong with being enthusiastic and passionate spiritually, but that should never be something that replaces the genuine power of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Because the Bible says with a gentle word, a person can break a bone. Somebody doesn't have to shout and get all excited and prowl the stage to make a breakthrough in their communication. You know, the founder of our wonderful movement spoke very methodically, very simplistically, but when he spoke, the power of the Holy Spirit 
brought breakthroughs in people's lives because it was the anointing of the Spirit, not passionate human energy replacing that in being charismatic, per se, if you understand what I'm communicating here. So again, this church, Jesus said, I see all your air gone. You've got lots of energy. But see, the danger is we know plenty of businesses in the secular world can be very successful if you know how to drum up enthusiasm about your product or your program. And so we, we need to be careful as the Lord's people that we're dependent upon the power of the Spirit and not just passionate, energetic enthusiasm and get off course. Look what Jesus says in a spiritual assessment to this unhealthy church. He says, I know you've got a lot of energy, but he says that you are neither, however, cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So notice, Jesus' spiritual assessment of them clearly indicates from his perspective they were in an unhealthy condition. He repeats himself for emphasis two times. He describes their condition. Look at it there in verse 15 and 16. Twice he says, you are neither cold nor hot. Now, as we think about what the Lord's saying here, cold water can be very refreshing to drink if you're extremely thirsty in a hot desert arid climate as they lived in. Cold water could be very refreshing to jump into, to swim, to cool off. It might also jar you a little bit, but the point is, is that cold water is useful. It can quench thirst, it can cool a person down, and it brought change in its influence. In the same way, on the other side of that, hot water, in a similar manner, could be used to make a pleasant hot herbal tea, if you're into that. It could be used to boil, to cook food, or to disinfect hot water. It can be something used in like hot springs for people to bathe in or to wash. Again, hot water isn't always safe. You have to be careful. You could get burnt by it. But again, just like cold water, hot water is useful. And it can be used in beneficial ways, and it brings about change. And Jesus says here, sadly, referring to their spiritual condition, I wish that you were either like cold water or like hot water. In essence, what he's conveying is, I wish your spiritual condition was strong, and I wish it was healthy, and I wish it was influential where change was happening, and beneficial things were taking place, but Jesus says, tragically, he calls them, notice, he says, but instead of that, you are lukewarm, which means room temperature. And how do you get lukewarm water? It's when cold water or hot water has lost its original purpose. It's lost its real purpose, its influential intention, and now it has lost its purpose over a period of time and become lukewarm. Now, lukewarm might be a safe condition where it doesn't cause any real impact upon people. Lukewarm water is not really helpful, though. It's never really influential. It serves no purpose. And a lot of times, if people don't like lukewarm water, whether it's their tea went cold or their nice cold water on a hot summer day has become room temperature, it, it tends to be something that is more repulsive to people in its condition, and it brings no real beneficial change. And again, what is Jesus describing? Their spiritual condition. And as he describes their spiritual condition that is unhealthy, he describes their unhealthy spiritual condition as being like lukewarm spiritually. This congregation, these believers, had no strong conviction in commitment in their spiritual condition. They were keeping their spiritual life and all connected to it, we might say, just status quo. They were keeping it safe. Don't want to rock the boat. Don't want to drive out the customers. We want to keep it status quo, play it safe, do whatever the people like. And again, they had become indifferent spiritually and apathetic and complacent towards the Lord without any real, it seems, healthy interest for the genuine things of pleasing Jesus. And Jesus calls them lukewarm. And look, churches, though they can be very active, churches apparently, according to Jesus, can become lukewarm where though they may be operating and doing things, churches can operate in a way where though they're doing things, they don't want to stir things up in people's lives. 
They want to make sure that they keep it status quo. Hey, we don't want to do something that rot. We don't want to be like hot water or cold water. That We don't want to jolt somebody. We don't want to do something where we might actually call somebody to respond or have a change. Let's just keep it safe. Let's keep it lukewarm spiritually. We'll keep it energetic, but lukewarm spiritually. And, we, and a church can play it safe. And as Christians, we all know, God help us. Perhaps we've slipped into that condition and had to seek the Lord for help. As Christians, we can become lukewarm spiritually, right? We can go from being on fire for the Lord and then realizing, oh my goodness, I've kind of become like lukewarm spiritually, Lord. And complacency sets in or indifference and, and, and a person can become apathetic towards the Lord or apathetic towards the work of the Lord where they no longer really have interest. I just want to play it safe. I just want to be a Christian, go to heaven. I just That's all. I just want to be a, a, just a stable, safe Christian, keep it safe, keep it status quo, enjoy my American dream, and someday blast off and get out of here and go to heaven. And as Christians, we can do that. And here Jesus says regarding this lukewarm spiritual condition when it happens to any church or to any one of us, Jesus says... Because you've become lukewarm, look at the end of verse 16, Jesus says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, would you agree? That's pretty strong language. That's pretty picturesque when Jesus says that. It's intended to shock people's systems. Jesus says, you want to be lukewarm. He says, I'm going to be like really direct here. I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to shock your system he says, when a person is lukewarm spiritually or a church becomes lukewarm, it makes me want to vomit, Jesus says. And think about it. Vomiting is when a person's body forcefully ejects what is harmful within. And Jesus says, this condition is so unhealthy and so harmful, it actually, he says, it disgusts me. It actually makes the Lord sick when there's that spiritual lukewarm condition. And to a degree, I can understand that. Having a half-hearted and apathetic attitude towards my Lord who saved my soul from perishing in hell, and Jesus who came in and washed me clean of all my stupid, idiotic, selfish things that I had been doing in my life, and was willing to cleanse me and forgive me and, and, and have a brand new start, who spared my life and turned it around and blessed it and made it such a wonderful experience in following him and all the benefits that come to living for Christ, and then I'm apathetic towards him? And I can understand how that would almost sicken the heart of Jesus, and I can understand how apparently when a church just kind of, you know, shrinks into this mindset of maybe just taking ideas from worldly systems that a church is mainly just trying to be like socially cool and so relevant and trying to be so safe and not offend anyone or any party rather than being truly spiritual and fulfilling the cause of Christ and preaching the gospel and sharing the word of God, and calling sin, sin, and being salt and light in a dying and a decaying world, I can understand how that might disgust Jesus. As he's looking, thinking, this is what you've reduced my church to? And I can understand how that would, in a sense, shock the system of our Lord. And apparently, this lukewarm condition is so unhealthy and harmful it actually causes Jesus to be nauseous when he sees such. So Jesus speaks in such a strong way, he goes on, verse 17, to say, because you say, and he seems to be describing the lukewarm condition, the unhealthy condition, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know, you don't see, Jesus says, that you are actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. So notice another major indicator of a church being in an unhealthy spiritual condition, very clearly according to Jesus, is when it becomes self-deceived and blinded to its own condition. Notice their own assessment. They saw themselves and said of themselves, they saw themselves as successful, as enriched, 
as prospering, doing really well, thriving, very self-sufficient. They were buzzing along, great production. They said, we don't need anything. We have need of nothing. Again, you can hear their mindset, perhaps the mentality. We have got this thing figured out. We have got a system that works so well in this church. It is working great. We are just prospering and thriving. And they viewed themselves as incredibly successful from the world's standards. And I say that because it seems they were measuring success by physical and material indicators. And again, that is not how Jesus would have us to assess spiritual health. Spiritual health is not physical and material. Spiritual health is how are the people who are the flock of God among the congregation doing? Are they healthy spiritually? Do they know Jesus? Do they truly understand spiritual realities? Are people growing and maturing in the Lord? And despite their view of their own spiritual assessment, Jesus speaks something vastly different in verse 17. Look, he says, but you don't know. The idea is he's saying you're, you're deceived of your own condition. You're not even seeing and realizing yourself deceived. Jesus says, I see you as wretched and miserable. That speaks of a very unfortunate condition, in a condition that is somewhat very unhealthy. He says, I see you as poor. Yes, you have lots of money, but he says, from my perspective, you are bankrupt spiritually. You're bankrupt spiritually. He says, I see you as blind or blinded. They had lost perspective of what really mattered to the Lord, what really mattered regarding the life of the church. They had become deceived. And he calls them naked. That is, he says, you're, the idea of being naked is to be in a shameful, exposed condition. And Jesus says, you think your condition is wonderful. He says, from heaven's perspective, it's causing complete embarrassment. The condition of that congregation. And Jesus here sees their condition in a very, very different light. Boy, I read this, and I don't know about you, but to me, it's a sobering reminder to realize how self-deceived we can all become at times as people. How we all have the potential to think everything is fine. To think what we're doing is totally appropriate and completely okay, and even that we are succeeding, yet it's our own pride that blinds us to how unhealthy we have become. What does Jeremiah 17 tell us? It says the heart is what? Deceitful above all things. He says, and then desperately wicked. Our heart, the bigger problem isn't just that it's desperately wicked. It's the most important part is it's deceitful about how desperately wicked we really are. And we don't even know our own hearts at times. And this is why it is so essential, Jesus shows us here, whether as a church or a Christian, to remember it is not about what we think of ourselves. It's not about what I think about how I'm doing, that what I need to be doing, like the psalmist in Psalm 139, search me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me that I'm not seeing. Lord, if I'm deceived, if I'm misguided, because one of the symptoms of being unhealthy, according to Jesus, is we stop caring about what the Lord's assessment is of us, and we just go with what our own perspective is on a matter. And we think, seems right to me, seems like we're succeeding, I think I'm doing okay, and here Jesus says to those doing okay, you're about to have a major heart attack, and you don't even realize it. Your life is on the edge, you're very unhealthy, and they did not even see it scary as that was. So Jesus gives them counsel. He says, verse 18, I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you might be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So because they were so wealthy, Jesus uses metaphors that they could resonate with. He says to them, listen, here's my counsel. You have need to buy, or he might be saying in a sense with this way, acquire from me things that you're lacking there. When he says here, buy from me, buy from him, the idea is to acquire. He's not talking about with literal money, right? Because Isaiah 55 declares, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So the Bible says if you have a need... 
You come recognizing with your need that you don't have what it takes to fulfill the need. You come to the sewers, and we come to Jesus as the sewers, and we buy or acquire from him. How do we acquire things spiritually? You might say we have to pay the cost personally, which is this, to humble myself before the Lord and to admit I am empty-handed, I can't bring change in my own life, Lord, and only by your help and through me looking to you can any changes come. And he tells them to acquire from him, from Jesus, three things here in verse 18. The first thing is that they would pursue true, valuable things that are spiritual virtues. They were interested in their bank account. Jesus said, I want you to acquire spiritual virtues. He says, seek from me gold refined in the fire that you might become truly rich. Now, gold was the metal of kings. It represented what came from a king's treasury or from the throne. And so Jesus, in saying this to them spiritually, is telling the church that they needed more of what was the most important currency from heaven's throne. What is the most important currency from heaven's throne to receiving things from the treasury of the king? Faith, right? What does 1 Peter chapter 1 tell us? It tells us of our faith that our faith is more precious than gold refined in the fire. And a healthy believer in a healthy church should be operating in the realm of faith, continuing in dependency to seek things from the Lord and to trust the Lord for things, which means we have to seek him in prayer and let him work. Let him provide and let him accomplish what's necessary. It's not striving in human efforts or succeeding with vast sums of our resources. It's realizing humbly we don't have what it takes and understanding that a healthy spiritual life is lived in faith. It's a life lived in faith. What does Hebrews say? Without faith, it's impossible to what? Please God. I had a friend say to me when we were pastoring the Calvary Chapel we founded first before here back in York, Pennsylvania, he really rebuked me one time. He said, tell me something. What part of your life right now, Tony, is requiring faith? Is there anything that you're doing right now that's requiring faith? And boy, that stung me because he says, if you want to keep pleasing the Lord, then you need to keep trusting the Lord for certain things. You need to be taking steps of faith and be working in ways where you can't just resolve it with this or that. And again, a healthy church, a healthy believer, we should be living in ways where it's not, well, if this, or, or I'll just write a check for it, but saying, Lord, I have to depend on you for this. If you don't do this, we're sunk, Lord. If you don't work, Lord, it's not going to happen. And where we're trusting him in faith, that precious faith, like gold refined in the fire from heaven's kingdom. Secondly, they needed to focus on Jesus' righteousness as the antidote for being right with God. He says again here that they needed these white garments we saw in the earlier letters regarding the righteousness of Christ so that their shame and nakedness could be covered. They needed this church to learn the value system of proclaiming and appreciating the righteousness of Jesus for a people who were very unrighteous in their own condition. Perhaps this church had strayed and were no longer okay with proclaiming to people the reality of our own sinful depravity. And Jesus says to this church, listen, you need to acquire from me the reality that people need my righteousness. You got to stop telling people they're okay. You need to stop telling people they're fine. You need to tell people we're not okay. That's why Jesus came. You need to keep telling people that we're broken and that we need the righteousness of Christ and we need to get rid of our own righteous garments, our own self-righteousness and these filthy rags and that we need the robes of Jesus' righteousness. And the only way we can be acceptable to heaven is if we have the righteousness of Christ given to us from Jesus who alone provides it. And thirdly, he told them that they needed their own blindness spiritually to be addressed. He says to them, anoint your eyes with the eye salve. And again, they were famous for their eye salve. So again, Jesus is just speaking of how they had lost perspective spiritually. And he says, you need the spiritual eye salve, a work of the Holy Spirit in a fresh way in your life so that the Spirit of the Lord would open your eyes again 
and you would see things from heaven's perspective and that you would see things with the eyes of the Lord. And interesting, Jesus says, I am counseling you to come to me for these things. And listen, Jesus doesn't just point out our errors. He always offers us counsel how to correct. And so Jesus says, yes, you're in an unhealthy condition, but I'm counseling you, if you come to me, I can supply these things that would bring health back to you once again. He goes on, verse 19, to say, in as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore, response, be zealous and repent. Notice a primary indicator, according to Jesus, of him extending his perfect love and the purest form of love is trying to help unhealthy people be delivered from an unhealthy condition. Look at his words there, verse 19. Those I love, care about, I rebuke. The term rebuke means to directly confront or to firmly challenge regarding error. So Jesus lovingly speaks to people very directly to cause them to see their error. He speaks very openly about what people at times are doing wrong because he wants to bring them into awareness of that. He wants them to see their error and to understand what needs to change so they can make it right. And he says, I don't always bring to their, only bring to their attention their error, but he says, when needed, those I love, I also will chasten. And chasten means to painfully discipline, to bring an unpleasant consequence, to awaken one's attention to the need of change, right? When we were raising our kids, was very simple. Bad decision, painful consequence. I'm not reasoning with a child like you reason with a terrorist. You don't do that. Bad decision, painful consequence. Reality discipline. Bad decision, painful consequence. Jesus says, bad decision, I rebuke it. I bring it to your attention. I help you to see your error. And he says, and I don't have a problem lovingly at times, Tony, bringing a painful consequence to get your attention, or to get you to stop, or to do something to spare you from your own self-destruction. And look, when that's happening in our lives, sometimes that's Jesus's love. He's not mad at you. He's trying to help deliver us from things we are doing wrong. And can I say too, sometimes the way we show Jesus's love may be through rebuking another person. It may be through challenging a person's error and speaking very honestly into their life about what's going wrong and bringing some form of even strong correction. But of course, Jesus says, though he rebukes and chastens, he says, I'm asking you now responsibly be zealous and repent. So notice the response is on our end. When Jesus shows me what I'm doing wrong, if he's trying to correct me and get me to stop, he says, my responsibility is to be zealous or eager about repenting. And repenting, metanoi, it's a change of mind that leads to a completely different change of direction. It's saying I was going south because I thought south was okay, or I thought south was the right way, but I now realize that it's completely the wrong direction. I need to turn around, stop going that way, and I need to go north instead. I need to go the opposite direction. And this is what repentance is. And again, take notice, folks, that Jesus is speaking of repentance to the church, to Christians. God help us when we think repentance is like a bad word. Oh, repentance, oh man. Jesus says repentance is a gift. It's a gift. Because it means, Tony, when you start doing what's wrong, you don't have to self-destruct. You can realize you're wrong, humbly recognize it, painfully take the spanking in the backside and turn around and change before it gets worse. And Jesus calls us to do that, but he gives us the freedom to respond to him as we should zealously turn when it's called for. He says, verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, a very intimate thing in the culture, to have fellowship and he with me. So Jesus seems to illustrate in picturesque language here perhaps how, how he tries to help us to change. That he comes to us, knocks on the door of our heart, and how does he knock on the door of our heart? Of course, it's by his voice. That's what he alludes to, if you hear my voice. So the way he knocks on the door of our heart 
is by speaking to us through his voice internally on the doorway of our heart, trying to get us to respond to him. Now, can I just say again, verse 20, often Revelation 3.20, many times we think of it evangelistically, but in context, it actually was spoken to Christians. It was spoken to a church. It was a church in such an unhealthy condition. Do you notice where Jesus is at in the church? He's outside. He's outside the church knocking on the door saying, could I perhaps get involved there again? Could I be the main attraction once again? Could I be the purpose and the reason for why you're gathering and the one who would direct what's going on? Can I be included? Apparently, according to Jesus, a local church can operate without involving Jesus. Having shut Jesus out of the very thing that is going on in the midst of a congregation. And think of this. Here is almighty King Jesus, the Savior, the head of the church, and he's standing outside the door of the church, kindly, graciously knocking, asking if he can come back in his own house. I mean, that's absolutely astonishing to me, knocking on the doorway of human hearts, saying, if you hear my voice, please, would you open the door in response? And I'll come in, and I'll dine, I'll, I'll intimately engage with you, and I'll help you. And my power will be provided and my provision. He knocks, but the question is, is whether we open and respond to his knocking. But Jesus concludes with, of course, another eternal promise, as in all these letters, to him who overcomes. We know that's the, the believer, 1 John 5 tells us that. To the overcoming believer, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down, he says, with my father on his throne. So notice Jesus seeks to kind of shift their perspective away from the earthly things, once again towards eternal things. He assures that even as he overcame this world and he then sat down with his father on his throne, Jesus says to those believers who remain faithful and resist the lure of the world, he says, one day as you overcome the world, you will sit with me in my kingdom, and when I'm ruling and reigning in my eternal kingdom, the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ, he says, you will sit together with me, and you'll get to assist me and participate with me in ruling and reigning in that time. It's almost as if Jesus, again, is cautioning them to not let the allurement of this physical material world defile and pollute their perspectives as Christians. And Jesus is saying, please, please be careful that you live in proper relationship, not to the present world. Live in proper relationship to the throne of God. To the throne of God. And Jesus says, may we all as Christians and churches have an ear to hear what the Spirit's saying to this message in regarding a condition to a church, you know, perhaps this morning, I don't know, let me ask, in what way has Jesus been knocking on the door of your heart? What has he been speaking to you about? And let me remind you this morning, there's only two responses. Either we open the door and we respond to the Lord and let him work, or we keep the door closed and resists what the Lord would have and could have done. Let me encourage the former so that we don't have regret of the latter. Let's stand together and let's pray.